after leaving us on tenterhooks through chapters 5 and 6. Last week with Trevor, we saw how Esther finally has made her request to the king. She has explained her predicament that as a Jew, along with all her people, she's under threat of death due to the wicked plans of Haman. And she has added that Mordecai, her cousin, is at the top of Haman's hit list. The king, in rage, has Haman executed on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And so, with Haman's death, the impending threat to Mordecai's life has been averted. But that didn't resolve the much weightier matter of this edict that had been dispatched all across the vast Persian Empire, which was designed to lead to the death of all the Jews. Hence, Mordecai and Esther may have been out of the frying pan, but they were, with all their people, heading rapidly towards the fire. They were not yet out of the woods. And as we reflect on this chapter, chapter 8 of Esther, I want to do it under really two themes, two big themes. And the first is this. Those who stand against God's people will be brought down. And the second, those who fall before the king will be raised up. So firstly, those who stand against God's people will be brought down. Now I have to add a little caveat to this, because there have been times throughout our history when the church has so wandered far from the purposes of God that it has been right and proper that individuals or movements should take their stand against her. In the 4th century, for example, Athanasius of Alexander stood, as he claimed, contra mundem against the whole world to defend the truths of the divinity of Christ and to stand up for those truths that are now stated in what we know as the Nicene Creed. Again, Martin Luther took his stand against the church at the Diet of Worms in 1521. There, according to tradition, he claimed to have said, Here I stand, I can do no other. Yes, people have stood against the church for the good of the church at various times throughout our history. But those who stand against the people of God, against the church, seeking her harm, will be brought down. This has been the story of the book of Esther. How this man called Haman set himself to destroy God's people, yet it was he, not they, who perished. And here in the, the passage that David read for us, in verses 1 and 2, we discover that all those things that Haman so treasured, his possessions, his position, his popularity, they were taken from him. And to add insult to injury, they were given to his arch rival, Mordecai, the man he hated. It's a bit reminiscent of how uh, Voltaire, who said in 1764 that the Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles command, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. He wasn't very taken by the Bible, nor fussed about Christianity, which he sought to try and uh, completely annul. But only 58 years after Voltaire's death, his home in Geneva had been rented by the president of the Evangelical Society of Geneva, a man called Henri Tronchat. And Tronchat used his house that he'd rented 
in which to store uh, Bibles in some of the rooms. And so Voltaire, who so opposed the Bible's house, became a place from which it was dispatched throughout the nation of Switzerland. And this is how we ought to expect God to work, to turn things on their heads. Those who stand against God's people will fall. We find this message in Hannah's great prayer from 1 Samuel chapter 2. There in verses 7 and 8, she explains that the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set his world. Again in verse 10, Hannah says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Again, you find that same theme in Psalm 113 verses 7 and 8. And note those words again. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. And this is precisely what we see happening to Mordecai. Yes, the publishing of that first edict had caused him to be clothed in ash or covered in uh, ashes and clothed in sackcloth. But the publishing of the second edict sees him now dressed in royal robes, not as he was in chapter six temporarily, but now this was his position to which he was permanently elevated in the nation. Again, we see that message in Psalm 75, verse 7. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The proud-hearted Haman set himself against God and his people, and he was, as all who do so must be, brought down. This chapter begins with the words, on that day. Reminding us that in the space of just 24 hours, everything was turned on its head. Haman and Mordecai have changed places. The great reversal of fortunes has taken place because nothing is impossible to God. Secondly, we must note that those who fall before the king will be raised up. Esther 8 verses 3 to 5. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. One minute she was on the ground before him. But from there, she was raised up to stand in the king's presence. Those who fall before the king will be raised up. For a second time, Esther speaks up before the king to seek the preservation of her people. And note the basis of this argument, the case that she presents. Continuing on, verse 5, it says, And she said, If it please the king. And if I have found favour in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, 
which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces, in all the provinces of the king. The hope of all her people rested on the person of Esther. Would she find favor in the sight of the king? Would she be pleasing to his eyes? Now I note there's no discussion of what is right or what is wrong, what is wise or what is foolish. The only matter at hand was this. Did Esther please the king? George Lawson, who around the end of the 18th century was minister in a church in Selkirk for almost half a century, wrote of these events. Esther's beauty, her tears, the strong emotions of her heart apparent in her gestures, the amiable virtues which shone forth in her generous concern for her poor friends were sufficient to have melted the most marble-hearted prince in the world. However it was, that Esther charmed the king. Whether her tears and her pleading or her beauty and her charm, the outcome is that, uh, that he gives her free reign to do as she pleases to resolve the situation. Uh, verse 8, he says, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. This book of Esther loves to humiliate the Persian legal system. Their laws and edicts of which they boasted that could not be changed are mocked. It comes very quickly clear that the intent of any law can be countermanded simply by creating another irrevocable decree to say the very opposite. And just as once, the king had given to Haman unrestricted authority to do as he pleased and to authorise laws in his name without his careful scrutiny. So, once more, Ahasuerus hands over complete control to Mordecai to do as he sees fit and to send out a further sight unseen edict with royal sanction. It becomes very clear that the king didn't care very much for what happened to his people. They could slaughter each other all day long, so long as it didn't disturb his peace. And while Mordecai's instruction only allowed for measured retaliation, not indiscriminate slaughter, these words do strike us as being rather uncomfortable and it's an issue we have to pause to consider. We read in verse 11 that people are to destroy, to kill and to annihilate. We can't simply rush by that without pausing the question, should the people of God be behaving in such a manner? Now, without pausing to spend an hour on the ethical issue of self-defense, as you read the Bible, it should be very clear to you that God is concerned about justice about doing what is right and in particular in ensuring the protection of the weak and the vulnerable. Therefore, we can assume that to defend oneself, your family and the vulnerable against unjustified attack is commanded in Scripture. You will know in the Gospels that, that Jesus' disciples were often armed with swords for protection. For example, in, in Luke 22 verse 36, we read, 
Jesus said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Yes, we know that Jesus taught to turn the other cheek. But he was speaking there of personal insult, not physical violence. And yes, while God's people are to pray for those who persecute them and to love their enemies unconditionally, the Bible does not teach us that we are to allow others to harm us without making the appropriate attempts to protect ourselves or those whom we love. So here we see that it would only be those who take it upon themselves to attack the Jews who would learn to regret that decision as they would come to harm. Those who stand against God's people must be brought down. It is clear that we're meant to note the great contrasts between the events of chapter 3 and, and chapter 8. And there, there, there's such a transformation. Haman's edict in chapter 3 caused great consternation in the city of Susa. And particularly among the Jews. And there we see in chapter 4, verse 3, this fourfold heartbreak, that there's great mourning with fasting and weeping and lamenting. But now Mordecai's edict brings fourfold blessing to the hearts of the people. Verse 16 of chapter 8, there's light and gladness and joy and honour. Once the people had been fasting, but now they are feasting. Why? Because they have received Good news. It's a great story of God's vindication of his people. But what does it mean for us this morning, two and a half millennia later? Well, we need to understand that the edict that causes us greatest concern is not the one issued by Haman in Susa, but by God in Eden. The covenant that he made with Adam. We read of it in Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course we know that Adam disobeyed and brought all the people of this world into judgment. All have sinned and thus all deserve to die. And like the Jews of those 25 centuries before, our only hope right now is if we have a mediator, if we have an intercessor, if we have one who will speak out on our behalf before the king. And this is the good news, the wonderful good news of the gospel. As we read at the start of our service, the words of Hebrews 7.25, that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient even to death upon a cross. As Paul writes, Philippians 2, Therefore God has exalted him. He fell before the King of heaven, but now he has been raised up to his right hand. 
And when you or I come before the king, we cannot argue the case of our beauty or our brains to win the king's favour. Our only plea must always be in the beauty of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and his obedience unto death, even the shameful death of the cross. He doesn't win for us the right to defend ourselves, but rather his victory assures us that there's nothing for us to defend ourselves from. Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has won the victory. We have this celebratory feast to which we are invited, which will not be for a season or for a holiday, but for eternity in the presence of God. We see in chapter 8 of Esther that this edict drawn up by Mordecai was so important that it was dispatched all across the empire, taken by riders on the swiftest of horses. And messages of life and death are to be shared far and wide with maximum haste. And there's no more important message than the good news of the gospel. That people do not have to experience eternal death. They do not have to be separated from the king's presence for all eternity. But if you fall before the king, if you humble yourself, if you confess your sin and declare your desperate need of a saviour, you will be raised up. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing our closing hymn, which begins, Your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. That's the story of Esther. It points to a greater dilemma and to a greater deliverer, to a greater sacrifice and a more wonderful saviour. May you know this Jesus. May you love this Jesus. And may you know that you are sharing in the victory that he has won for you at Calvary. There's no condemnation for you. It's been born by Christ. And one day you'll be safely home with your father the King of Kings forever.